0: Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? There we go. Now it's, now it's a normal Sunday. Why don't you guys find your seats? Amen. Well, welcome to 2018. Anybody else feeling super old? Oh, wait, our church is super young. You know it's bad when I'm one of the oldest people in the church. Thank you for that. (laughs) A new year is upon us, and the older I get, the more I recognize one fact with every new year. Change is hard. Whether it simply means getting older or having transitions in life, change is hard. Sometimes change means leaving habits and ideas behind. Sometimes it means losing relationships. And sometimes it means beginning new relationships that are always a bit awkward at first changes hard. As we enter the new year, I want to acknowledge this truth. It changes hard for those of you that have been a part of Mission Fellowship for a long time. For those of you that are newer to the church, or maybe you have the unfortunate uh, space of being a visitor today, I want to invite you to walk with us through some of this change which you probably have not even noticed And for those of you that are visitors, I I do want to say, I'm sorry, you're going to walk away going, man, that church is so serious, right? There's some serious content today. But for those of you that have been attending for years and have noticed the change over the last six years, I want to validate for you the giant elephant in the room that mission has definitely changed from where we were six years ago when we first planted. For any of you that have experienced strain or stress, or even hurt over that fact. I want to empathize with you that the changes over the last 6 months and those that will continue for the next few months, they have been very hard. And I want to acknowledge that. One of the hardest things is that some of the change has brought people, not a ton, but some, to ask whether or not this is the church for them. Maybe some of you right now are even asking that. And I want to acknowledge that that is hard. For those that have left either because of some of the changes or because in the midst of the changes now seemed like the good time to find a new church, I want to publicly thank them for the time they spent here. I want to thank them for the love that they showed us. And I want to encourage each of us to pray that those folks who have left the Fellowship of Mission find a church home in which they can flourish and grow, knowing that they are still brothers and sisters in Christ in the midst of the kingdom of heaven. And then I want us, those that still remain at mission, to begin the process of healing from any residual brokenness that exists within our church body, and I pray the same for the hearts of those that have left. My hope is that sometime in the future, some of them, if not all of them, might rejoin fellowship here with us. And I also want to apologize to any of you that have felt the heaviness of this change because of relationships that are strained or because you felt like the way that we rolled out the changes were not done in a way that showed love or care. And as I've stated to some of you in individual conversations, that has never been my desire, nor has it been the desire of the leadership team of this church. The one thing that we have always stated as leadership, as clearly as we can to you, is that we will do our best to lead this church in a way that is bound by Scripture. And brings glory to Jesus. Regardless, can I get an amen that change is hard? But change can also be an amazingly good thing as well. Often change stretches us and grows us and matures us in ways that could not have happened if the change did not occur. And I believe that in the long run, the changes that we are in the process of implementing will be amazing for this church body. And overall... It will be amazing for our small part in the kingdom of heaven that stretches far beyond this church and the people in it. And so over the next few weeks, I want to talk about these changes in the context of Scripture and the vision of Mission Fellowship. These are going to be three teachings that are separate from Ephesians, but yet very much connected. And in the midst of them, I want to address the changes in theology that have been apparent in my teaching over the last year or two. I want to address covenant membership and congregational authority and why I believe that mission will flourish with these changes in place. And I want to center all of it in the gospel of Jesus Christ. As I teach over the next few weeks, my desire is not to debate, it's not to argue with anyone, nor is it to correct or change any other church or group or people that have left. I desire simply to place before you the Scripture and the thoughts that have slowly but surely convicted our leadership That it was time for a change. And if after these three weeks, if any of you come to the conclusion that you need to move on from mission, I want to let you know that we would like to hear that from you. We would like to pray for you. And we would like to send you on from mission with a blessing and the love of Christ to continue the mission of Jesus with another fellowship. Most of all, for any and all of you that choose to remain, I want to bring us to a point of unity where we can move forward with one accord and one spirit doing all that Christ has called us to. And I want us to love those that may no longer fellowship with us while still partnering with them in the work of the kingdom that goes far beyond this church. So, what I ask of all of us Is that we listen with open minds and hearts as we begin to touch on some very emotional topics of change. For our time today, I want to answer the question many have asked me over the last couple of months, and this is the main thing I'm going to cover for the next 45, 50 minutes. Why did mission fellowship need to change? If you're taking down notes, go ahead and write that down. Why did mission fellowship need to change? The old adage is held very tightly by many, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. don't fix it. Yeah, good. We are a six-year-old church plant, which is a miracle in and of itself. The average church plant lasts two years. We've grown from four adults and four kids, my wife and I and our two sons, we're four of those, to over 250 people. Some Sundays we've almost reached 300 in attendance. We have baptized dozens of people in the Willamette River and by this point delivered over 500 sermons. And this is all amazing, especially when looking at the statistics for the average church plant. So then the question I've gotten is, why would you want all that to change? Isn't that good? Isn't that successful? Well, the first reality I must fess up to is that given my own selfish heart, I don't like change. I don't want to change. Even though my Enneagram personality says I like change... If you talk to the pit in my stomach, it says I don't like change. And I never wanted to change. I never wanted to adjust the model of church that we put in place. I simply wanted to keep growing. And it probably would have fed my ego if it did. And I know that it would have been easier and much more comfortable for all of us. In terms of relationships, it would have been much less heartbreaking for me, for my wife, for my kids, and for all of you. So again, Hans... You're not doing a very good job here. Why change? Well, the best way to answer that question is to give you the testimony of my personal journey as it regards the church and its importance in my walk with Christ. And we will get into Scripture, don't worry, but I want to lay down this groundwork. I was born into a home in which both my parents declared themselves to be Christians until I was about four or five years old. They went to church. I went with them. I remember screaming and running down the aisle one time when I was supposed to get on stage, foreshadowing for my future, I think. At an early age, my parents had a falling out with the church, and they didn't ever go back. We would go to my uncle's church on Christmas and Easter, but that was it. And so the entirety of what I knew about Christianity had little or nothing to do with the church. I find that I am more like many Christians than different. Long story short, while I believe myself to be a Christian, my entire life was marked by blatant disregard for the command of Christ— and it came to a head in the midst of my first years of marriage with my beautiful wife, Kelly. At this point in my marriage, I firmly believed the old adage, you don't need to be part of a church to be Christian. But we were so broken, we figured we needed something. And so, eventually, we landed at a church that went through all of the Bible. And I will forever be grateful to Pastor Brett Metter and Athe Creek Christian Fellowship because of the love they instilled in me for the Word of God and the chances they gave me to grow and lead in it. It was with the blessing of that church and the elders that we, through both tears of leaving and joy, came down to Salem to plant Mission Fellowship. When we planted, I had the same conviction then that I do today, that I wanted to teach anyone that showed up what the Word of God says in truth. And so I started studying like never before. About two years into the plant, or about four years ago, Through a number of circumstances in preaching, in counseling, and in discipling, I started to question much of the theology and the meaning that I had either interpreted or been taught over the years when it came to Scripture. And in that I realized a very weighty truth. I, and our leadership, have the potential to harm people with a false understanding of Scripture. If I don't get trained in how to rightly interpret this book, and deal with many of the motivations that are not godly in my heart for leading this church that had more to do with success from a growth standpoint than it did walking in obedience. I had to admit to myself that my ego was more of a motivation than my obedience for this church. So I began attending Western Seminary in Portland for both a degree in counseling and a degree in divinity. And here's what is amazing about the professors and mentors I have at Western. They don't force any given opinion on us. They simply engage in lots and lots of analysis of what the text says. They ask, what is the Bible saying? Not what do you think it is saying, what do you want it to say, but rather, what was the original author trying to say? And they will never know the impact they have had on my life. I tell a couple of them all the time that any problems I suffer as a pastor is all their fault. (laughs) Now, the gospel I had stuck in my head before I started studying the Word of God more seriously was one that I have found well-stated in a book uh, by a group called Nine Marks that we will be using their material when we go through discipleship groups for those of you that are members. And here is the gospel put together in a summary that I think they did very well that captures what the gospel I had in my head was at the time. God is holy. We have all sinned, separating us from God. But God sent His Son to die on the cross and rise again so that we might be forgiven. Everyone who believes in Jesus can have eternal life. We're not justified by works, we're justified by faith alone. The gospel therefore calls all people to just believe, and an unconditionally loving God will take you as you are. Now what does this sound like? Well, it sounds very similar to the Romans Road, which many of you have probably been trained in. You've been trained how to take that and give that to people, and it's a quick way to share the gospel. And I want to tell you up front, I love the Romans Road. And this gospel sounds pretty darn good, doesn't it? What do you think? You're all like, is that a trick question? <laughs> it is a bit, but it sounds pretty good. And the Romans road is an amazing thing. Here's what most people use when they use the Romans road. If you're not familiar with it, it's taking a number of verses out of Romans. Here's the first one usually used. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Is that true? Yes. Romans 3.10-12, through 12, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one... No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Is that true? Yes. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is that true? Yes. Amen. It's true. But God shows His love for, for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Is that true? Yes. Amen. It's true. Romans ten nine, one of the greatest verses in the whole Bible. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then Romans ten thirteen: For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And usually it's followed up by some form of affirmation that your salvation is secure. So here's an example that's pulled from Romans eight thirty eight through 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Now, is anything wrong with this? No, not at all. This is truth, and it's wonderful truth. The gospel is certainly not less than this. But I want to ask you, knowing that the book of Romans is 16 chapters, is there anything missing from what Paul was trying to communicate when we used the Romans' road to describe Christianity? Guys, when you take your text messages and hand them to someone and they rearrange them in order and pull them out of context, are you pleased about that? No. Now, granted, they might get the basis of what you're trying to say, but guys, there's a whole lot missing, kind of like the last six chapters and the first two. Now, again, hear me. Don't be against the Roman's road. Memorize it, understand it, use it as a tool. If you have 30 seconds before somebody is about to jump off a cliff, you need to use this for them, okay? I'm being dead serious. But the reality is, is that if this is all we know and we keep people at this infantile level of understanding salvation, there's going to be a problem because we're missing something. Because when you run into other passages, and guys, I'm a pastor, I do this all the time. People get saved someplace, like at a camp or at a conference, and then they come to me and they're reading their Bible and they're going, what I was told at Young Life Camp is different than what you're preaching on Sunday. And I go, well, why? I'm preaching through the Bible. And they say, well, because you're teaching stuff like this. This is from Luke fourteen twenty-five through 33. Now great crowds accompanied him, and Jesus turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build... And was not able to finish. In other words, he started, but there was no endurance. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Guys, does this sound like Jesus is teaching something that's unconditional? Or is this conditional? He's teaching conditional. And so people will come to me and go, Hans, the Romans road says that basically all I have to do is believe and say something, and then I'm saved. And I realized, guys, in the midst of teaching this church, that with that previous version of the gospel, based largely upon verses pulled out of context and pressed together, I was obviously missing something in my understanding of the message of salvation. To do altar calls every week after week, and then yet watch people fall away from the Lord constantly just in the first few years was blowing my mind. I knew that we weren't going to be able to have everybody walk in endurance, but the percentages were staggering. And even the percentages from other people. Guys, Billy Graham himself, the organization behind Billy Graham, 8% of the people that walked down and prayed the sinner's prayer ended up in churches. Now, if you were going into a business and you were going to get 8%, Return? That's not a very good return. You'd be out of business very quickly. That's not even in line with the 25% of the idea of the seed and the sower. The 25% will be trees that grow in fruitfulness. And so I was starting to realize that something was broken. One view of salvation was that belief brings salvation and God's unconditional love is there for the taking no matter what happens from that point on. The other is that there are conditions on being a disciple of Christ and that God commands. He requires growth and obedience and sacrifice in the life of a Christian. And this varies depending on where the believer comes from. I'm not going to expect someone who comes from a completely pagan home with no background and maybe substance addiction, I'm not going to require the same growth or, or understanding in Scripture that I am someone who grew up in the church. The Lord is gracious depending on where you are, but regardless, anyone who comes to Christ who's saved by His grace, not of their works, is then required in the midst of that grace to grow in obedience. Because I started to connect the dots, and I started to look at the places, let's say even in Romans, that aren't in the Romans road. Look with me at Romans 1, 5 through 6 here. This is what this says. Speaking of Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom, Paul says, we have received grace. There it is, guys. Saved by grace. That is truth. And apostleship. To do what? To bring about the obedience of faith. For the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And notice that he says the global church, all the nations, and then you specifically in the local church at Rome. Look at Romans 12, which is past the verses that we looked at before. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. That's a pretty big thing. It's not just belief in the head. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In other words, that's possible, it's not just a a wish dream that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Notice with me what's at the end of Romans. You got the bookend at the beginning, here's the bookend at the end. This is Romans 16, 25 through 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel, Paul says, in the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations, According to the command of the eternal God to bring about what? Everybody say, what is that word? Obedience Obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Church, would you agree with me that obedience is important in the mind of Paul? Now let's clarify because I'm already seeing it on some of your faces. I've seen it for six years. Some of you are moving into shame mode. I am imperfect, therefore I'm not obedient. Stop letting your father wounds from earthly fathers and fallible earthly figures ruin your understanding of obedience. Just because you had an overly authoritarian parental figure or pastor or coach does not mean the Bible is wrong when it calls for obedience. When most Americans hear obedience, they think moral perfection. Raise your hand if you're able to keep that. It means never making mistakes. Nope. That is not the biblical view of obedience. Obedience is a pursuit of maturity. Let me give you an example If one of my wonderful sons, John or Jaden, makes a mistake, let's say they break something or maybe they hurt their sister, doing that is not what makes them disobedient children. What they do with that mistake is what makes them obedient or disobedient. If they recognize the sin because they've already been taught that that was sin and they repent from it on their own, how proud do you think I am as a dad? those are my wonder moments where I praise God that he gave me children. And even if they don't know that it's sin because they haven't been taught it yet, but I come to them and I say to them, one time, that's all it should take as parents, just so you know, it should take one time. Obey right away. That's one of the things we tell our children all the time. You parents have a huge job in teaching this theological truth to your kids. You don't give them one, two, three, four, five. Okay, one, two, three. That's not what God does. God says obey right away. And so if they obey right away after I tell them the correction and they repent, do you think I'm proud of them? Absolutely. It is only if they persist in that sin and go completely against my authority that will draw a negative reaction. As Christians, we must understand that obedience is not moral perfection. It's not about not making mistakes. It is simply submission to Christ's authority. To be obedient is to be submitted to Christ's authority. And unfortunately, I believe that that idea is completely lost among most Christians today. Now this is important. Listen with me. Is obedience required for justification? No. No. Absolutely not. You see, as enemies of Christ before Christ saved us, it was impossible for us to obey on our own. And so it is only by God's grace that we were reconciled to Him. We couldn't earn justification because we were just disobedient all the time. It was our DNA. But based off of Paul's statements... We understand that that grace not only saves us in justification, but from that moment on, it also equips us to grow in obedience and maturity as Christians. And yet, for the first two-plus years of this church, I was preaching, and we as a church were witnessing. And you may not agree with me, and that's okay. But as the pastor, I have insight into things that a lot of you don't see. And what we were doing was preaching and witnessing To the idea that someone who continues to walk in blatant, unrepentant disobedience and rebellion against God and His Word, we were saying that they were still saved because God's love is unconditional. And guys, if you listen to a lot of my old teachings, well, you can't anymore because I took them off the website, but that's what I was doing. And you might say, well, what's wrong with that? God's love is conditional, but guys. We're going to go through that in the next couple of weeks. We'll talk about God's love. But today, I want you to understand that a truly biblical view of salvation says that we have been saved, are being saved, and will be saved. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. And all of this is because of the grace and mercy of Jesus. Justification is absolutely by His grace, nothing we could do in terms of our own merit. Glorification is 100% Him. We can't suddenly snap our fingers and uh, bring us into glory. But sanctification is an odd duck because in the process of salvation, the Bible says that the cooperating grace of God comes to us, and we have to cooperate with the grace of God. Without the grace of God, we can do nothing on our own. But with the grace of God, we are called to cooperate with Jesus and do work, footwork, to grow in maturity and be sanctified. And a great deal of the responsibility for sanctification lands on the leaders of a given local church. And we'll talk about that more next week. The grace of God assists us in the process, brings us into maturity, and one day that change is completed in glory when we see God face to face in His restored creation. And so, guys, the more I learned about basic theology and the more I read my, the Word and I became convicted that I had been teaching only justification and maybe some glorification in the form of the rapture, but I had not been teaching sanctification. What happens when a person does not get presented With this full picture of salvation? That it is not only justification by God's grace, but it also requires repentance that results in a life growing in sanctification? Well, my understanding of the word, as I'll show you today, is that there is the possibility that that person who only heard part of this truth becomes inoculated to the idea of sanctification. And it gives them room to walk in disobedience, believing that they are still guaranteed salvation that's the danger. I realized that I needed to look to the whole of Scripture, not just snippets here and there that back what I had been taught and what was comfortable for me. And so turn with me to one of the main sets of verses that is used to proclaim that first gospel I showed you. Go with me to Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9. This text is often isolated and pulled out of context and quoted to state that works and obedience are not part of the process of salvation. But guys, if you say that to someone and you don't help them to understand the full picture and the cost, you're not giving them a full understanding, as I'll show you here in a section in a second. Look at Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 with me. What does it say there? It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Guys, is that truth? Absolutely. It's right there in the Bible. It's truth. But realize that this text isn't supposed to be isolated. He wasn't writing a tweet. Intelligent people don't just send tweets out all the time when they want to lead things. Sorry, political comment. <laughs> this, is reg- this is correct in regards to being justified. Justified. Because justification comes by the grace of God and nothing else. But if we don't keep reading and we don't read in context, we miss out on the full message of salvation. Here's what the minimum of what I want you to read is. Turn back with me to Ephesians 1.19. You've already gone through some of this. And let's look at the full thought of Paul. Because remember, there were no headers, there were no chapter breaks, there were no verses. Here's what Paul said. Speaking of the glorious inheritance in the saints, the work of Jesus on the cross and resurrecting, here's what he says, starting in verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might as the Father working, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only... In the, this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We talked about this. This is Jesus being placed as what role? King and creating a kingdom. And then he says, And you, continuation of thought, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, in other words, a different kingdom. Following the prince of the power of the air, in other words, a different king. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So you got one kingdom that's disobedience and you got another kingdom that's what? Obedience to the king, right? See, to walk in the kingdom of the prince of the powers of the air is to walk in obedience to him, which is disobedience to Jesus among whom, he says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Our sin deserves wrath. But God, two of the best words in the Bible, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he had loved us, is there anything we've earned there? No, it's all his love. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In other words, two kingdoms were made. He took us out of the one we were in and he moved us into the other one. That's the gospel. Did you see anywhere in there that when you die you get to go to heaven and don't have to go to hell? It's intimated, but the point is, is you were moved to a different kingdom. For by grace you have been saved. Where? From the old kingdom to the new. Through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. See, he gave you citizenship because of his grace. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, pause there. Now we've been moved into a kingdom and we are citizens of a king abiding by his law. And then it says... For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you think works is a part of our salvation? Yes, Yes, it is. It is not part of our justification, it is absolutely part of our salvation. Now, what are these works? Well, his thought continues, because again, he's not tweeting. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh or in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one. In other words, he took two disagreeable groups who hated each other and were not reconciled and what was the work that Jesus did? He reconciled them and made them one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now be careful there. He's talking about the Mosaic law, not any commandments whatsoever, okay? Because the Bible says sin is lawlessness, so Jesus still asks of us to follow his law. It's just not the Mosaic law. So he's abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both, Jews and Gentiles, to God in one, what's that word? Body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Look at verse 16. Reconciliation of people that previously did not get along to form one new body, what is Paul talking about when he says body? Okay, Cameron answered it right. Gold star for you. Everybody else, what is Paul talking about? The church. And here he's meaning the global church. He's not talking about a local body, because Paul uses body for both global and local. And so the works that we are to do is to build the global church, which is both bringing in non believers through evangelism and growing them to maturity and living life together in love and submitting under the headship of Christ. So guys, we get to do that globally with Marcel and Laveau and amazing people at DHS and all that, right? But most of your time, your energy, it's going to be done in obedience to Jesus within what part of the body? The community that you belong to. You see, the miracle is that we were enemies of God existing within a kingdom that rebelled against him under the authority of Satan. And the good news is that by his grace, Jesus paved a way for us to be forgiven. We were forgiven of that citizenship under Satan, and we were given new citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. And so now we live not as people waiting for the result of salvation when we die, but we live as citizens today that obey his laws today. And we live as His disciples that obey His teachings. We live as His children who obey His fatherly commands. We live as His subjects who obey His lordship as king. And because of that new status and identity in Christ, we are also given the life of Christ as a gift to begin growing us into His image. And in doing so, we become more and more obedient according to His command to love one another. Guys, and this call to obedience is the very job that Paul gave to the leadership of every local church. Look with me a little bit further ahead at Ephesians 4.11. Are you still with me? Okay, two of you are. Is anybody else with me? Okay, Ephesians 4.11. And he, God, gave to the church, okay, because chapter 4 is about the unity of the church, the Holy Spirit in its midst. We'll get there. We'll talk about that not today, but we will talk about it. Verse 11 says this, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. What are all those things? They're roles and giftings, but specifically here in connection and, and, and context of other verses where he talks about roles and gifts, he's mainly talking about leaders here. In other words, he gave the leaders to do what? To equip the saints. Who's that? I know this is really hard to believe, but our leadership group is supposed to be a gift to you. It's supposed to be a gift from God. I know we're not always kind of that gift, right? Sometimes you open us up and we have fruitcake inside or something, right? But we're supposed to be a gift. Why? Because we're trying to help equip you. For what? For the work of ministry. Well, Hans, that's your job. That's what you do on Sunday. No, guys, who's supposed to do the work of ministry? You are. 24-7, 365. What is our job as leaders? To build you up and equip you to do so. For the building up of what? The conversion of non-believers? No, what's it say there? For the building up of the body of Christ. Now again, that means both conversion of new believers into the church and maturity of those that are already there. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to what? mature manhood. Now, here's the deal. What is that mature manhood, right? Because who, who's stating what maturity is? To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. See, so many well-meaning pastors, oh, guys, you know, good thing that Jesus, man, he was, he was holy, true. He was perfect and sinless, true. He died for us, true. That's absolutely right. And we could never even come close to him. Well, you just called Paul a liar, Because the reality is is that every single one of us individually can never live up to the stature and fullness of Jesus Christ. But remember, our job is not to just build us up. Our job is to build up the one new man, the one new body, to the measure of the stature of Jesus Christ. In other words, our job is to build up the church so that we accurately reflect who Jesus is so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, which is a commandment, by the way. It's not, it doesn't say being passive-aggressive. It doesn't say letting sin go by and not addressing it in the church. It doesn't say uh, forgive and forget. No, speaking the truth in love. So when we are broken, we need to be told that. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, that's the church, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, Paul again is here talking about the global church, but he's also talking about the local church because you're not responsible for Marcel in his daily life. You're not responsible for Laveau in his daily life. I'm not a leader over Laveau or Marcel in Burkina Faso or Haiti. We are the ones who are responsible for one another in this body. So not only were we as a church at the risk of potentially inoculating some new believers against the necessity of sanctification, but we as leaders were not doing our job helping mature the church body that we already had in front of us. There were mostly two gifts being utilized in this church, mine and Shane's. And that's why most of you put both of us on way too high of pedestals. Who's supposed to be doing the work of ministry? Every single one of you. And that's not just talking about volunteering or greeting. Or Shane's got a great voice and he's a really great pastoral worship leader. Praise God for that. So is Michael. In a different way. Because he's got different giftings. Praise God that the Lord gave me a big mouth so I can yell at you all the time. But praise God, he also gave us Patrick as an elder. We're so thankful for Tyler as a deacon when he steps up into the role of teaching once in a while. We're all supposed to be doing ministry. And we were all so focused on new people that came in and whether or not we could get them to pray a sinner's prayer so that I could tweet or Instagram that we had more people saved and our church grew and look at us. While by God's grace, some of you were not growing at all. But some of you were. By God's grace. Overall, by and large, there was a lack of health amidst our church for the last six years. You see, our mission statement is to make disciples of Jesus by teaching, equipping, and sending. That didn't need to change. How we were going about it did need to change because we primarily get this idea from Matthew 28, 18 through 20, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What's he saying there? Who is he? Our king. That's not a savior statement. That's a king statement. He is savior. Don't get me wrong. But that's a king statement. Go therefore, that's a command, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, guys, I am so thankful for our missionaries that we support. I'm thankful for the Taves that give their life to go and make disciples of Jesus. They are made up for that. Jeremy, I'm sorry. I could not fit in an airplane. You can. There's a difference, right? And we need to be praying for them every day because they're going to be going back. You guys leave in what, two weeks? Four weeks? Okay. Okay. So make sure and pray for Jeremy and Jody and all their kids and love them and talk to them. But guess what? That doesn't get you off the hook. You're supposed to be making disciples. We, together as a body, are supposed to be making disciples. And what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to teach them to observe. That word, tereo, in the Greek, means obey. Sometimes when I use the word obey, I look out and I see a a group of people that look like bruised puppies that have gotten beaten by their owner. As if asking you to obey is against the Word of God. Obedience is key. For us to be healthy, we must continue to proclaim with our lives, our actions, and our words that Jesus was sent to die in the place of sinful man, that he rose in victory three days later, and that he is enthroned in lordship over his church. But we must also create a community in which those that confess that truth might also be brought into the community, and grown to maturity and obedience to Christ. So what does that process look like? And what does this have to do with all the changes that we've made? Well, the process of becoming more and more obedient begins with, I believe, looking at our definition of the gospel. You remember that gospel I put up there earlier? God is holy, we've all sinned, separating us from God, this one, Right? For the most part, this is absolutely true, but the problem is, is I think that there's some pieces that need tweaking based on what we've just talked about with the need for obedience. Let me give you the other version of the gospel that is stated in this Nine Marks book on church discipline uh, that I think is very important for us to understand, and you'll all see it in your own hands if you sign up to be members and and step into those um, discipleship groups. Here's what it says, God is holy, still begins in the same spot, the same truth. We have all sinned, separating us from God, but God sent his Son to die on the cross and rise again so that we might be forgiven. Now, everything underlined is added and changed from that previous version of the gospel there so that we might be forgiven and begin to follow the Son as King and Lord. Everyone who repents and believes in Jesus can have eternal life, a life which begins today and stretches into eternity. We're not justified by works. That's still true. We're justified by faith alone. But the faith that works is never alone. And the gospel, therefore, calls all people to repent and believe. And a contra-conditionally loving God will take you contrary to what you deserve. And then he will enable you by the power of the Spirit to become holy and obedient like his Son. Not instantly, not perfectly, but eventually. By reconciling you to himself, God also reconciles you to his family, the church, and enables you as his people to represent together his own holy character and triune glory. Now, I know that some who listen, maybe even online or here today, might say, this is not the gospel. The gospel is just justification. It's adding to the gospel. It's making it too complicated. It's placing the response to the gospel in with the gospel itself. But guys, what I would submit to you is this. Hear me here. For the Christian who desires relationship with Jesus, it is good news that we are saved from the consequences of our sin. But is it not also good news that He has given us what we need to begin growing in obedience to the very one who saved us? Why is that adding to the good news? It's good news that you are saved by grace, nothing you've done, absolutely. It's also good news that he places a spirit in you that so loves him that you desire to obey him. Because it would not be a good marriage if Kelly took me by grace and then I treated her like garbage for the rest of our life and our marriage stunk. No, it's grace that she gives me room to repent and change and grow and mature as a man. I still have a lot of room to go but that's part of the grace and the good news. The life of obedience is part of the good news of the gospel, and without that as an emphasis, and I would say honestly as much of an emphasis as justification, especially for those that are sitting in the church and have already declared that they follow Christ, without that emphasis, I fear that many will fail to reach His eternal rest because of unbelief that results in disobedience. So let's look at one particular phrase out of that gospel. And this will help us start to understand the process of growing in obedience, and this will start to gear us towards next week and the week after where we talk about how church membership and and covenant and, and congregational authority play into all of this that I'm talking about. It says, Then enable you by the power of the Spirit to become holy and obedient like His Son. Now this is where there is a pretty large spectrum of disagreement across the global church. And guys, it is, in a sense, a secondary issue, but I fear that it could also roll into something more serious than that. Let me show you what I mean. This idea of the Spirit helping us to become holy. In the spectrum of disagreement, what I have found in many different denominations, and I'm not going to say denominations, but you could probably figure out which ones are which, the spectrum of opinion on how the Holy Spirit goes about sanctification On the one side, it's very individualistic that the Holy Spirit within you does all the conviction. It almost overtakes you and changes you and transforms you and makes you holy. That's one side. On the other side, in a completely different part of orthodoxy, is a group that says, no, it's all through the church. It's all through the sacraments and the obedience to the sacraments, confession and penance and all these things, right? But I think what the Bible teaches, and this is just my thought, you need to search it out for yourselves. But what I think the Bible teaches is that this work of sanctification is both done in the individual, through the Word of God, but it's also as applied within the community of believers, also known as the church. Because, guys, if it's just up to me, I'm probably going to do a pretty good job of agreeing with and obeying, you know, 75, 80% of Scripture. But when it comes to that thing that I want to do, have sex with my girlfriend outside of marriage. I, I love her. I'm committed to her. I think Jesus is really all about committed relationships. I can tweak it however I want when it comes to that thing that's important to me. So what safety mechanism did God put in place to make sure that I don't act only on an individual level, that I stay obedient to his word even when I don't want to? Because, guys, I have the capability to convince myself that the Spirit of God is directing me to do it when, in reality, I have no assurance. It is not just my own desires, opinions, and emotions. What is that safety mechanism? I believe it is the local church community that you belong to and under whose authority you submit to. Look with me at the book of Hebrews and you'll see what I'm talking about. We're going to start in Hebrews 3, verse 6. Hebrews 3, verse 6. Give me an amen if you're there. To paint the context, Jesus is being compared to a number of different individuals. The first two chapters of Hebrews, he's compared to the angels because the Jews knew that the angels were the ones that handed the commandments to Moses, and and so he was being shown as the greater giver of the law of God. Here, uh, he's being compared to a greater than Moses, and he's being shown to be a better leader. And he's showing that Jesus is the one that calls people to obedience just like Moses did, and the Israelites, they failed in that. Okay, so let's look here at verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast, there's that endurance piece again, our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers. Who's he talking to here? Yeah, he's talking to the church specifically, the Hebrew church of the day, but then us because we're part of that apostolic tradition. Take care, brothers and sisters. The word Adelphoi means brothers and sisters. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, this is what I've noticed about myself and about most American Christians. We take commands as suggestions. Oh, that's so great. So, when it's comfortable, when I have the chance and it comes to my mind, I should exhort somebody. Anybody, anybody who's a Christian. No, he's talking about He's talking about the people within your body. You need to work together to make sure no one gets pulled away from what? The deceitfulness of sin. You see, sin can be deceiving. It doesn't just come in in a moment. It doesn't destroy your affection instantaneously on Christ. It slowly but surely shifts and moves it to yourself. And it's such a slight move that you don't even notice it yourself. Guys, in the years I've been pastoring, I'm so sad every time somebody comes to me and says, Oh, Hans, I know you've preached on it, I know the Bible says it, that I shouldn't marry a non-believer, but, you know, they love me and I'm really hoping that they'll come to Jesus Christ, and so I'm just going to step into that relationship uh, and trust God. Guys, that is blatant disobedience, and God is wrathful against that decision, and yet churches and Christians go, oh, isn't that fine? We're sending that person to hell, potentially. Now, by the grace of God, maybe they do get saved and maybe that other person gets more mature in Christ and it all works out, but guys, that has not been the majority of cases that I've seen as a Christian. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Guys, I am very Calvinist in most of my understanding, but when I'm bound by Scripture and it says there's a potential to fall away, I'm not fully Calvinist. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You need others around you to exhort you when sin becomes deceitful. Look at verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ. Can you have individual salvation without other people? Yes, in one sense, but no in another. We've come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. There's that endurance. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Notice the communal nature. Notice the need for endurance to the end. Well, what keeps us from reaching that rest? What is synonymous with hardening your hearts in the mind of the author of Hebrews? Let's keep reading. For who were those that heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? In other words, the, the people that were saved. They were saved from the enemy. Every Israelite was saved from the enemy. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? It's those same people who were saved. Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were... Everybody say it out loud for me, so I know you got it. So wait a minute. You can be saved and brought away from the enemy, but then in the process of getting into the promised land, if you're disobedient, there's a potential you may fail to enter that rest. Is that what that's saying, guys? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Wait a minute. He just said disobedience. Notice that the author makes belief and obedience synonymous. To the Jews, the Hebrews, this would have made total sense. The great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love him with all your heart, mind, and soul. That idea here, Shema, in Hebrew, it always means to a Hebrew... Hear it, and then act on it. The idea of mental assent alone was unknown to the Hebrews. Now, please notice with me the fact that the author of Hebrews continues to make this idea of belief and obedience synonymous. Look at uh, verses 4, 1 through 2. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as it did to them. They heard the good news. That word is euangelion, which is often translated gospel. For gospel came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Guys, every single one of us knows that lone wolf Christian that believes they're a Christian, that doesn't believe they need to be part of a church, that's out there wandering around doing their own thing. Guys, what does it say right there? Wrestle with the text. Don't listen to me. Wrestle with the text. We should fear lest anyone who we believe is a brother or sister has failed to reach the rest of God. For the gospel came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who believed entered that rest. As he said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world... Now, look forward with me at verses 11 through 13. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You see, folks, I love each one of you so much, and I know that sounds like hot air coming from a pastor, but I mean it, that I want to tell you that each of us will give an account for the life we lived. Not just if we prayed a sinner's prayer, not just if we remember our spiritual birthday, but how we lived as obedient children of the Father. And what a great lie of the enemy that he could convince so many that all the church should be worried about every Sunday is conversion and not obedience. While supposed saint after supposed saint enters into eternity in disobedience, never entering the rest of Christ. Guys, we must wrestle with Scripture. Don't take my opinion. What did Jesus say? Read it out loud for yourselves. Say it again. The bottom line is that we need one another to walk in obedience, to exhort one another. If the Holy Spirit is the one that does the work of sanctification, then we not only need the Spirit within each of us individually, but we also need the Spirit that dwells within the portion of the church body with whom we live every day. Each Christian needs a community around them to support them, encourage them, and hold them accountable when they step into disobedience or begin to allow the cares of this world to choke out the fruit in their lives. This is not to abuse the person, not to shame them, not to sin sniff in their life, but to be responsible for one another that we might be assured that they will enter into God's rest with us. So, dear flock, why did we need to change? Because as a church overall, We have not operated in a way that reflects all these truths. Now let me be clear. I know I'm going long, but this is important stuff. Let me be really clear. If someone left our church, that does not mean that they're walking in disobedience. If someone disagrees with me, that does not mean that they're walking in disobedience. Each of us today have to wrestle with these texts and ask ourselves, am I accountable to what Scripture says? And we have to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And I know that after these three weeks, there may be some of you who know and decide that you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling amongst another community, with another pastor. And I rejoice in that because I just want you to do it somewhere. My joy would be if you did it here, but I recognize that may not be the case. And if that is true for you, that does not mean you're disobedient. That's why we want to pray for you and we want to send you away with the love of Christ into another fellowship. But my job is not to be responsible for the people at Salem Heights or Salem Alliance or Morningstar or... Burkina Faso. My job as pastor of this church and our job as leaders is to be responsible for you and to wrestle with Scripture ourselves. And so the next few weeks, we will delve deeply into why we believe that implementing covenant membership and congregational authority will help this church. Stop worrying about whether or not every other church needs to do it or whether or not I'm condemning other churches for not doing it. Recognize, guys, that when you start making that argument, and you start arguing the other way, you're stating that any church that does covenant membership is in sin. We're not saying that a church that doesn't do covenant membership is in sin. Don't come back at us and say churches that do covenant membership are in sin, because there's a whole lot of great churches that do it. We need to become more healthy at mission. And our leadership believes that covenant membership and congregational authority are simply tools. They're not ways of salvation. They're tools that will help us become more obedient to these truths we've talked about today, and therefore we will become more healthy. And I will describe to you how we as leaders believe this vision will help us also become far more effective in evangelization. One of the big rumors that's been going around is, oh, we're trying to be us for and no more and condense and not look outward anymore. Have you met me? Have you met us? What did we just look at? Roofs in Burgina, guys. We're going to be evangelistic. Stop worrying that we're going to suddenly become a a club. That's not our heart. I will describe to you how we will start to grow in evangelism in a different way than what we did before and how we will continue to take the gospel to the ends of the earth than what we have done before. And so this morning, I understand. I really do, guys. I want you to hear my heart on this. I understand that many of you might disagree. And that is okay. In fact, it's probably good because we're not trying to create automatons. I simply ask that you and maybe your family wrestle with these texts and you keep coming the next couple of weeks and reserve judgment until you hear everything I have to present because this is a big topic. For now, as we go into a time of worship, I want us to take this foundational introduction of why we needed to change and understanding all that Christ has done for us, not only in giving us salvation by his death on the cross, but also by giving us his grace to walk in obedience. And so I want to finish today as we go into worship with the benediction that comes from Hebrews chapter 13. Let me just read it to you, and I want you to receive it as from me to you. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with every good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.